0: Welcome to the first full episode of Nepal Now. My name is Marty Logan. There's no doubt that today, COVID-19 is the main issue in Nepal and in most parts of the world. So I decided when I started planning this podcast that it would be the subject of the first episode. But I also knew that I didn't want to discuss the daily news, things like case numbers, quarantine centers, equipment shortages, government mismanagement, etc. Instead, because this podcast is all about examining issues in Nepal with an eye to doing things differently and contributing to change, I wanted to focus on something far more positive. How Nepalese have rallied to help one another during this crisis. I was very fortunate to be joined by Nayantara Gurung Kakshapati. Nayantara is doing very interesting creative work in Kathmandu that stretches conventional boundaries of visual storytelling, research, pedagogy, and collective action. In 2007, she co-founded Photo Circle, a platform that facilitates learning, exhibition making, and publishing opportunities for Nepali photographers. We discussed the work that Nayantara and her colleagues are doing in response to COVID-19, and its links to the huge volunteer efforts that marked the response to the devastating earthquakes in Nepal in 2015. We also delved into the strength of what Nayantara called the country's community-led social security system and asked whether that force can somehow be bottled and fed into the current political system. We spoke remotely, so apologies in advance for any strange sounds that slipped into the connection. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation otherwise. If you like what you hear, please don't leave before you subscribe to the show in your podcast player. If you have any thoughts about this episode or ideas for future ones, you can email me at marty at martylogan.net. That's M-A-R-T-Y at M-A-R-T-Y-L-O-G-A-N dot Now, here's Niantar. Hi, Nayantara. Welcome to Nepal Now. It seems like you're incredibly busy these days. Can you tell me what you're doing uh, at the moment around COVID-19?
1: Hi, Marty. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, Yeah, it's been strangely very busy. I mean, the first uh, few days and weeks, I suppose we were all kind of getting used to this whole lockdown mode but uh fairly quickly um uh along with our team at photo circle we I, I essentially started working on um kind of covid response uh prevention information a public information campaign really around prevention and around sort of learning more for ourselves um, about the current COVID situation. Because as a, as a team of sort of arts and culture and communication folks, we felt like that's what, you know, we were best sort of positioned to do as a way to sort of contribute to the situation or, or respond to the situation. So we started out um, by identifying sort of key information that the public should know uh, and translating that material uh, into Nepali and other local languages, and then really sort of working through our networks, um, existing networks, but also building on that and creating new networks across the country to try to push that content um, into online, but also like radio and other offline spaces um just because we felt that information is obviously so critical um to respond to the situation right now
0: sure i mean you're you're right it looks like there are lots of needs um in response or to respond to the pandemic you know as a someone with a communications background i was really happy to see that you were doing work on you know providing information which seemed to be lacking um, what what kind of response have you got so far to that?
1: It's been, you know, uh, mixed. Um, but I think the challenge that we were facing initially is, you know, how can we um, reach beyond our existing reach and radar, right? Because being based here in Kathmandu, we certainly are very aware of our limitations in terms of our reach as well. Um, and how can we go beyond the people who would already have access to some of this information? So we've we started building sort of um, networks and collaborations specifically with that in mind, and trying to you know uh, reach out to uh, networks that reach migrant workers, networks that reach sort of community leaders. Um, through women's groups and Botsat groups and trying all sorts of ways, really. Also trying to penetrate social media and break some of the sort of um, uh, the algorithms that limit our reach, uh, typically, um, and to forcefully kind of, you know, intentionally try to identify local Facebook groups and pages and and put this information into those spaces as well. Another realization was that the larger systems, I mean, we are a very small independent entity, you know. Um, and a lot of um the young people who we started working with, um, who are writers, translators, illustrators, other kinds of content creators, uh, they joined this effort, this sort of campaign on a voluntary capacity in the first couple of weeks. And so this was a very sort of guerrilla style info campaign that we were running. But we were realizing quite quickly that the larger systems were really slow. And I mean, we know that larger systems, you know, we know the challenges to get those larger systems going. But it's, to be really honest, very frustrating to see that the resources that can and should be mobilized, um, even just on the info and, and sort of public knowledge front of things, in terms of COVID response, are taking so long to to actually get going?
0: Yeah, I, I you know I certainly agree that things seem to be rolling out very very slowly. Um, but one of the things that encouraged me and continues to encourage me is you know the the breadth and the number of initiatives, let's call them community based or self help initiatives, you know like your own. Um, that have sprung up doing all sorts of things. I mean, the obvious ones are providing food, providing uh, masks, equipment, um, soap, that kind of thing. And it's good to see that they're they're happening across the country as well. And I know you've noticed this too. And And we'll talk a little bit in a moment about how you've been involved in this kind of self-help or community uh, involvement in the past in response to past disasters, but how would you describe what you're seeing now in terms of how this non-formal sector is responding?
1: Yeah, I mean, in in strange ways, this feels like um, deja vu a bit, you know, because this kind of mobilization was happening, or at least I was involved in it post-earthquake five years ago as well. And, uh, but but before that as well, and after that as well, and I think it's just a reminder that in this country, and I'm sure in many other places around the world, that uh, most of us um, who are not part of larger systems, whether they're governance structures or otherwise, kind of feel like we are, um, that it is going to take self-help right to to rely on larger s- systems of social security uh, we have very little faith in that unfortunately given the political structures of you know uh, our country so on the one hand it's heartbreaking to realize that yet again people and the most vulnerable people especially are left to their own defenses um whether it be after huge catastrophes or even on an everyday basis um so it is very frustrating and 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 very sort of infuriating also to to continuously you know see that happen again and again but on the other hand as you said um it is also i think encouraging and a healthy sort of um, I feel a healthy necessity because uh, at the end of the day, for it to be a, you know, a a healthy ecosystem, I think each of us have roles to play in our own communities in um, slightly larger uh, structures. And I think so many you know, groups and individuals coming together, networking, collaborating, uh, we can see so much happening even right now uh, given all the challenges of the lockdown, given the economic hit that every strata um, of society has felt uh, in this post in this COVID situation, um, despite all of those challenges, people are fundraising. People are organizing relief drives. People are—I mean—in the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing in the news that you know private uh, sort of groups are fundraising to buy. PCR test labs and set-up labs in places like Birgans and Zapa and, and you know, youth groups and volunteer groups across the country, road tract clubs, other kinds of youth clubs, small, um, you know, uh, NGOs are mobilizing funds to take care of, like, super basic necessities. and And so you do realize that there is immense power and potential when community comes together um, and mobilizes, and that perhaps, perhaps, you know, eventually, a strong civil society, um, strong community-based organizations, strong community leadership, strong community networks, is really the way forward, right? And and the kind of hopes and expectations we put on larger systems, the more sort of alpha powers uh, of of the ecosystem. Uh, perhaps doesn't get us very much, or at least that's how I'm feeling right now.
0: Sure. I mean, this is exactly at the heart of of what I want to get to. But just a a few slight detours before before we try to unpack that a little bit. Um, When I was doing research for this, I came across a really interesting report by an organization called the Overseas Development Institute. And it really surprised me because the headline conclusion was that after a humanitarian uh, disaster, humanitarian emergency, only about 1% of the aid that is pledged in response actually comes from the international community, donor countries and big international organizations. But that a huge chunk of it comes from remittances, from family members working overseas. We know this very well living in Nepal. In some areas, it's almost like each house has someone working overseas. So when something bad happens, those people provide a huge amount of the response. And then a lot of it also comes from faith-based organizations. So in this case, in Nepal, a lot of it would be from temples, and I suppose from mosques also, um, even from churches. And then there are local governments, provincial and national governments, and then from the communities, from the cities or or towns themselves. So I was surprised to see the extent of that, I guess. Does, does that surprise you
1: as well? When you use that figure, obviously 1%, um, I do confess that it does surprise and startle me um because i haven't looked at these kinds of figures and numbers um i mean of course i wonder how um such research is also done you know like how you know aid is what what kind what forms of aid is sort of um calculated to arrive at these figures but uh, in a general sense you know and this is what i was saying earlier too my experience has been that, you know, in in the various limited capacities that I've been involved in, our source for for funding certainly does not come from any of the aid agencies that quote extremely large figures um, in their sort of package announcements and all of that. Uh, it does not come from government sources. But it really does come from these other sources that you just mentioned, including you know remittance, including diasporic communities giving um including um, large sort of global communities that care for Nepal. Of course, the difference um we have felt this this year, in addition to the info campaign work, we've also been doing a little bit of um, food aid, um, dry rations within the Kathmandu Valley in the last couple of months. And largely a lot of that uh, fundraising has uh, depended on the diasporic Nepali community and also people who've lived and loved Nepal in various ways giving. And so uh, after the earthquake, for sure, we saw quite a few uh, sort of faith-based organizations also get involved, not only to give, but also to mobilize on the ground, to use their formal and informal um institutional and, yeah, non-institutional networks also to volunteers on the ground, so on and so forth. But, yeah, it is, I guess it is just testament to the fact that, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, that it is, these informal networks that really sort of hold the fabric together, especially in post-emergency situations. And we're perhaps really not mindful enough of the roles that we all play or can, yeah, at times like this.
0: Sure. Yeah. And you you brought up a good point about where exactly those figures come from. And I, I will post links to that report in the notes to this show, uh, there was a related report that looked at flooding in Nepal uh, in the south, in the Terai region, after rains in 2017. So during the monsoon in 2017, they did a study on that particular example and found that only one-sixth, so you know roughly 16-17% of the so-called humanitarian aid that that arrived there came from international organizations. So the number in that particular example is a bit higher, but still um, not far from being the, the majority of the aid. So let's let's now look a little bit or go back a little bit in, into history. You mentioned uh, the earthquake of April twenty twenty fifteen, and I was in Canada at the time, but watching what was happening here, because my my wife's family is from here, we were very concerned, and we saw very quickly how non-government sources were responding, and learned also very fast that a number of those were young people, young people's organizations, volunteer, or just people on the spur of the moment uh, organizing themselves. I know also that, again, from a little bit of research I did before, or for this call, that after flooding in 2014 in the West and far West, something called fill the bucket, so hashtag fill the bucket, kind of organically grew up. Do you, I know you're not officially connected to that, but can you say anything about fill the bucket and whether that is, uh, to your knowledge, the first example of this kind of organized self-help online anyways?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I do remember, uh, like you said, I wasn't involved in sort of organizing the fill-the-bucket campaigns, but I do remember um, being on the sort of receiving end of that campaign and then contributing. Uh, perhaps it was, uh, and and I mean, this is not based on any kind of research, but just based on what I've seen, um, perhaps it was one of the first campaigns to use a hashtag in that way and uh, organize on social media in that capacity. But I think that this culture of community organizations responding to, you know, whether it be floods or post landslide, post earthquake, you know, natural disasters is a long tradition. Like we've had a long tradition, right? Like we have uh, large um, organizations like the Marwari Sewa Sumiti, for example, who are always, very active in these situations. I've personally experienced and seen their work uh, post-earthquake uh, and uh, each time, you know, every year when there there's flooding that happens. Um, so these kinds of, uh, I think, fill the bucket also describes uh, the, their efforts as sort of pop-up efforts, you know, pop-up campaigns, pop-up fundraisers. I think, yeah, I think they fill the gap for sure. They do reach people much quicker than larger organizations can and larger systems can. However, you know, and even the work that we did post-earthquake and in other situations in response to other mostly natural disaster type situations, um, as much as we want to credit you know uh, the involvement of volunteer groups like this and and celebrate it and and recognize the value of it i do constantly remind want to feel like it's important to remind ourselves that what we're doing as citizens groups are sort of these reactive responses to situations that are very dire and we are mobilizing resources and social capital and whatever else networks in our, uh, that we have the capacity to mobilize. But time and again, I really can't help but feel super frustrated about how it really isn't the job of, you know, young volunteers to be tackling uh, much larger systemic problems that can prevent some of this kind of loss and and trauma that we see post disaster because the flooding for example is very much you know a political issue and an economic issue i mean there are um, larger systemic uh preventive um needs that our government and you know and 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 the government south of our border very well knows what those needs are but there is very little action um, and and when sort of policies are crafted, and when mitigation programs and strategies are crafted, you know they could be doing, they need to be doing so much more. So again, I find myself really walking this tightrope of, you know, wanting to, of course, value the role of um, civil society, but also the need to continue to call for accountability and to continue to call on these larger systems to be doing their jobs. I mean, they are supposed to be doing so much more. Um, and so, yeah, I, I consistently find myself quite frustrated about the situation.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Uh, and as someone who's lived here for, for a while now, uh, close to a decade, I I share your frustration I certainly don't want to downplay that. But I do want to ask you one question before we kind of delve into what you just said, which is after the earthquake in 2015, I know that you were very active. Assuming this was your first kind of response to a so called disaster at that level, I mean, what personally got you involved?
1: Well, the earth shook under our feet. <laughs> And at that point it was kind of like um a non-negotiable route for in in many ways it started out with um you know when when the earthquake hit i was um in a room of about 35 40 friends and colleagues and we were actually in the middle of a well it was the last day of a of a 5 day oral history workshop and so strangely enough we'd been uh, doing interviews um, in pattern uh, uh, around uh, uh, the the last earthquake, the big one, uh, uh, almost a hundred years before, and so this the topic of the earthquake had actually come up and um, had been a, a a theme throughout that workshop, and then uh, suddenly on the last day it hit, and because I think I was in a room uh, full of uh, friends and colleagues. You know, that sense of a collective experience and that sense of a collective response was very quick and sort of like natural, you know. We all exited the building and then a bunch of friends from that group went into... We were at Patan Doka at Yolamaya Kendra. They decided to walk further into Patan, the inner city, and to see what they could do to help. I ended up staying back with a lot of others trying to sort of see if we could contact each other's families and just keep everyone sort of huddled together uh and then very soon after that um a bunch of friends who were in that room and and then others who i usually work with like the photo circle family um my my brother and his friends like a bunch of us just uh decided to meet i think it was on i forget now maybe day two day three after the 25th and see what we could do and uh, it also started up my 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 parents they run uh, a bread factory so one of the things that happened was that all this bread uh, suddenly couldn't be distributed to the market and so it was just sitting there and we thought maybe we could just start by distributing some of that bread And um, interestingly, my brother's, um, you know, like active in this whole mountain biking community here, which is growing and, you know, becoming increasingly active. And a bunch of his mountain biking friends suddenly showed up and said, you know, we can go like fill our bags with bread and ride our bikes and go out and distribute them. And so all sorts of people like this um, came together. There were a bunch of friends who had just finished a week-long first aid course. And so uh, they kind of sprang uh, into action and said, well, we're first responders and, you know, let's come together and do something. Obviously, the needs were immense um, in that, you know, those few days after the first earthquake hit. And so we started coming together like that at the Yellow House, which is a small bed and breakfast that my family runs. And, And it really just grew very organically and spontaneously from that initial meeting that was called. And on, you know, days that followed, we had sometimes hundreds of volunteers just gathered there. And we very quickly realized that we cannot sort of try to organize this. surge of sort of volunteer capacity because it's just too chaotic and too, you know, we were making decisions on the every hour and we were sort of, you know, identifying um, roles for ourselves kind of almost hour by hour. And it, it became that place became a sort of a gathering place and a place to come together and, and propose ideas and and find other people who were willing to work with you or together and so it just became a space a platform to sort of for people to connect and uh, and then we started also very quickly receiving requests for help from here and there through various channels that we were all plugged into and so it became a place where we were collecting requests and needs were being identified. And then there were groups of volunteers who would then respond to those requests and those needs and just self-mobilize. And so lots of groups kind of met there and and went off and did their own thing. Uh, People ended up doing incredible things like, you know, a lot of fundraising happened, a lot of uh, organizing of sort of tarp supplies and uh, medical supplies. Lots of young doctors and nurses came together and went out into affected areas to respond from a medical uh, standpoint. Uh, Obviously, we were also supplying uh, dry ration and and food supplies also. Um, There were people who specifically started doing sort of more sort of sanitation work, like building toilets and and then, of course, shelter was a huge need. So lots of people started self-organizing and creating like prototypes for 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 shelter, um, etc. Some of them tried to uh, liaise with the government and also other organizations. But for myself, I think it was a realization quite so um, quite early on that. You know, I think the strength of that community was really to to be self-reliant and to, to be able to make decisions quickly and to just move into action um, without having to go through layers of decision-making and bureaucracy and uh, coordination. And so I think f- a personal choice was to kind of function parallel to these larger systems, but independent of them.
0: It sounds like... Um Obviously, uh, an extremely busy, hectic, challenging time. But again, it sounds like the, the rest, that response part of it you're describing was was also very positive. And I'm also thinking that you you were already a convener, right? You you had co-founded Photo Circle. There was, uh, I think, at that time, there was Photo Kathmandu, the Photo Library, or the Picture Library. So it's it sounds like you were, you know, playing a similar convener role.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, that experience of having, you know, worked um, in collaborative ways uh, pretty much all of my sort of professional life really did play a role in, in, in what I saw my role to be. Uh, it was definitely, you know, like I was... Really, uh, what's the term? Uh, cog in the wheel. You know, like it was a huge, huge, um, coming together of people and and them bringing their own, um, uh, you know, uh, skill sets and and social capital and and experience, professional work experience, um, together. So i also found myself relying though quite um you know uh, directly on um professional and other kinds of networks and relationships that you know one has built over time uh, for me the last 12 14 years of working on photo circle and all of that i suppose and because very quickly you know like there were basically trust networks that were being activated. Right. And just being able to pick up the phone and say, Hey, can you, you know, uh, can you step in here? And can you, and, and so I think we, I think for me, it was a realization that, you know, um, whatever field that we work in here, we do have our own sort of uh, networks of trust, networks of professional experience, etc., and and we build on that consciously or subconsciously, and especially in times of sort of emergencies and times of post disaster situations, we really rely on those um, networks. And so, yeah, to be able to mobilize that, I think it was for me an incredible learning experience um, working with everyone and i I made um so many new friends and <laughs> you know uh, you know I would have never i think uh, ended up working with that wide a network of people um here and and now posts i mean in this covid situation we're not posted unfortunately. Um, I find myself relying on those networks, those same networks or similar networks. So it kind of feels like, you know, just building on that. And I think the the initial group that sprang into action uh, when this lockdown started was very much the core group that uh, was working together during the Yellow House days as well. So we weren't starting from scratch in that way. You know, we had that kind of, in a way, invisible set of human resources and, and trust networks that we were just um, yeah, subconsciously relying on
0: mm. that that was going to be my next question, actually. so now do do you find that you're doing more or less the same thing that you were you were doing after the earthquake? Um and I think you you answered that uh, if if someone from outside asked you about this self help that is going on now in nepal and you needed to describe it in a very in very few words how would you do that is it a youth movement is it a community movement and this is a collection of communities
1: it almost you know feels like a community led social security system in a way you know Because there are no other social security systems to rely on. The community relies on each other. Um, And springs in, and, and it's more visible in these kinds of dramatic situations, I think, but this is how things have kind of always worked in, in many ways. When people get sick, we don't have a healthcare system that a larger, you know, government provided healthcare system that takes care of, each other we rely on each other family systems community systems when at difficult times in life we rely on again family systems and community systems and so this too feels like that you know and so it's really again devoid of more formal and government um sort of provided social security systems
0: right yeah i like that term community-led social security. I mean, I, I think that that captures it pretty well. I first came to Nepal in 1997, and being someone who is interested in development and, I guess, small-p politics uh, and pays attention to that, I, I, I've never really been impressed by governance uh, in this country. And, you know, I've now developed this line, which I like to say... Nepal has developed, and it's made some great strides in the last two decades, despite everything, and in spite of its leaders, I think, rather than because of them. So I'm looking at, on one hand, this governance system, which is not very successful, I think, to put it politely. And on the other hand, this incredible, you know, to use your term, the community-led social security and is there is there some way to use the the powerful, successful one to improve the one that's not working that's at the nut of what i've been or at the heart of what I've been thinking about around this conversation. There's so many good things happening at the community level and so many negative things at the governance or at the at the organized govern governance level
1: I don't know, Marty. I mean, today, right now, it feels, you know, like such a futile um, project to try to imagine how that can happen. But, you know, uh, on better days, uh, perhaps other people also have uh, better ideas of how this kind of bridging and, you know, feeding can happen right now. It really feels like our role is really to continue as we self-organize and self-help and self-save ourselves, um, you know, because that that obviously takes a lot of time and energy and resources. And in just even in the last few weeks, like I've been feeling really split between wanting to put more time into that, which is a more natural, instinctive sort of direction for me, for all the reasons we've already discussed. Uh, But splitting time and energy into also, you know, speaking, writing, organizing, to demand for better governance and to demand for accountability and to demand for our, political um, structures to be doing better. I mean, you know, we, I have certainly grown up uh, surrounded by peers who uh, kind of grew up in this culture of saying, politics is a dirty game, you know, and for a long time. And, you know, I grew up uh, really sort of uh, with that kind of a mindset and even the, you know, I'm sure you've been aware of protests that have been happening in the last few weeks. Um, there's a campaign that is very aptly titled Enough is Enough, and young people across the country have been organizing and coming on the streets, you know, um, trying to do it safely, of course, but but coming out there to to, sh- to express their dissatisfaction and frustration um in the way the government has responded to this COVID situation, specifically addressing, you know, the needs to re-strategize testing and re-strategize quarantine um sort of uh mechanisms and to to call for more accountability and transparency in in the way government funds are being used and to really call out the government for the 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 crazy, you know, um uh, corruption sort of Um, issues at hand even at a time like this Um, and so you know and and a large part of sort of the narrative of what is uh, what we are seeing in terms of these young people coming out is being termed as sort of apolitical right and I personally feel like these are highly political issues that you know this generation of young people are engaging with the fact that they are exercising their you know, agency to come out onto the streets to protest despite regulations that are sort of trying to, um, a quote unquote, keep the community more secure by, you know, enforcing sort of the lockdown and be an attempt to sort of repress the kind of street uprising that could uh, surge now in in the weeks and, you know, months ahead. given how the economy has been hit, given the desperation, the brink to which people are being pushed by this situation. um, Despite all of that, young people have chosen to exercise their agency and come out on the streets. And I think that is highly political. It's just a partisan, right? It it hasn't been mobilized by any political, formal political party or entity. Um, And actually, I feel really heartened to see that kind of mobilization and young people participating in that because it is really what this country needs, right? It is citizens who want and will continue to demand accountability from larger governance structures. So I don't know if that is the relationship that, that is the only relationship that, you know, civil society can have with its government government which is kind of like to play this sort of watchdog you know role and to say you know and to to continue to sort of play the role of being pressure groups to say we want answers we want accountability i definitely think that that feels like what needs to happen right now um of course there might be other kinds of relationships that civil society can and hopefully will have with larger governance structures which is to be able to offer skill sets and to be able to offer, um, you know, um, human resources to uh, for larger governance structures to rely on um, to put policies and, and programs into place. But unfortunately, there seems to be so little interest perhaps more, obviously more from the side of the government to do that. I know for a fact that several independent experts and civil society members offered suggestions, you know, um, offered resources, offered time and skill sets to the government in this pandemic situation right now. Uh, but there is, it, it feels like there is absolutely no interest um, from the end of the government to make use of that. And so, yeah, I don't know. Right now, it feels like that bridge um, needs to be created. But I feel honestly quite um, disheartened um, to see the way things are moving right now.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I also have seen at least one example of some experts, some young data experts who wanted to contribute in some way, and I think in the end just gave up because they couldn't find anyone willing to take advantage of of what they were offering, which is is very unfortunate. Um, And so what you're saying about there being this huge divide on one hand, the political structure, and on the other hand, I guess, the rest. That is that is unfortunate. I'm interested in federalism, and I see some positive things happening, at least at the local level. Of course, there are lots of negative examples we can talk about uh, among local governments and provinces, but I'm still hopeful that maybe some of this community power, if I can call it that, will manifest itself?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, that is really the sort of light at the end of the tunnel, or so it feels like right now, I think. I think we're seeing, definitely seeing better response at the local and provincial level. Um, The center seems too busy just protecting its own interests and sort of status quo um you know and 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 fanning its own ego um but at the local level obviously you know there is more accountability um uh, and hopefully more um and now thankfully more resources um also right so so certainly in the last few weeks and months we have seen more hopeful um stories and accounts at the local level where you know, local governments are using um, local budgets um, to install PCR testing labs and and buying kits and 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 relying on sort of local f- fundraising to make uh, you know additional sort of to create additional resources to take some of these uh, steps. So certainly, yes. I mean, that's where where I think the solutions lie, and and it's. It's a it's a new and still fragile, obviously, structure, the federal structure right now, and so it is chaotic. It feels like uh, to a certain extent, but but I think things are moving. At least um, you know, attempts are being made, and people feel like they have some like civil society, and and the average citizen feels like they have some relationship or the possibility of making an inroad at that level, I think. So like, even with some of the, you know, stuff that we've been trying to do with the information campaign and some of the other sort of lobbying work that we're trying to do, we are more hopeful and we are now really trying to redirect or direct more time and energy to, conversations there. So so you're right and and thank you for that reminder because it's important to be able to identify where i think we could perhaps try to co- make contributions and you know as opposed to just like hitting our head against the wall at the center.
0: Yeah, you could end up with a very bruised forehead if you did that all the time. Listen, this has been great. Uh I'd like to end with one question though. To kind of put you on the spot, if you could suggest one thing that people listening to this could do now to start building a better Nepal, I know that sounds like a huge ask, but I think that's what we all want, right? Um, Nepalese and people like myself who support Nepal, we all want to see the country reaching its potential. So for people who maybe don't know where to start or are unsure about how to get involved, what would you say
1: yeah i don't think it, it, it this is like a grand suggestion that i make because i can like we've just discussed i i can see so many people and groups already doing this but i think i think these problems feel so massive right sometimes and we feel so sort of insignificant in the midst of all of this and it that can feel very paralyzing but I do think that it's critical that each of us given our you know professional and other kinds of expertise and experience and, and social and other kinds of capital that we have access to I think it's so important to do to act to understand first of all what's going on and then to to do things to come together collaborate um and to to make small actions happen because i do think that i mean i really like this whole analogy of ants you know (laughs) like i think we're all sort of an army of ants, like lifting our own weight a little bit and working together. I do think that large, larger shifts can take place, you know? So I think, I think I, my hope at least is that, uh, you know, at a personal capacity, but also through the various networks that I'm, you know, working with, my hope is really that, you know, we are all doing what we're doing in whatever field that we work in, whether it's public health or, you know, uh, whether we're entrepreneurs or whether we're artists or whether we're journalists and writers and thinkers, that we're doing what we do to strengthen this larger ecosystem. And I do believe that whatever we do, when we're doing it to our best capacity, as so many of us are, Um, We are strengthening this ecosystem and to consistently continue to do that, to continue to work together, to string some of these efforts together. I think that visibly, but also invisibly, we are sort of, you know, um, playing really important roles um, in this keeping this larger ecosystem active and healthy. Um, and so I do believe, yeah, like the ant analogy, the other one that I really appreciate is, you know, like the role that moss and algae plays in <laughs> keeping larger ecosystems alive, you know? And so I think, yeah, perhaps, um, and, and so many friends and colleagues around me, I can see doing that already. Uh, and it's very inspiring, and it does keep all of us going, I think.
0: Okay, that's great. It's a positive note to end on.
1: Thank you, Marty. Thank you for your time and these questions. Sometimes, yeah, you, when you're in the midst of all of it, you don't really have the time and space or inclination to reflect, so this has been great. Thank you.
0: And thanks to you, Nayantara for coming on and sharing some of your experiences and insights about this topic. The citizen response, to me, is one of the few bright lights in what has otherwise been a very, very tough time around COVID-19 in Nepal. And I'm really hoping that its impact endures in some way. Thanks again.